Today on episode number 248 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, I welcome to the show Debbie Bath to speak about surveying social and open learning. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak. And this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. On today's show, I am welcoming Debbie Baff. She is a delight to speak with, and I've actually been waiting to speak with her for more than a year now. We've been back and forth, as you will hear. She's a senior academic developer at Swansea University in South Wales in the United Kingdom. She's been working in higher education for over 20 years in a number of different roles along the student life cycle. She's an advocate for open education and community learning and is a self confessed lifelong learner. She's always worked full-time and studied part-time. She has a master's in online and distance education, an MSc in business psychology, a professional certificate in management, and a BSc in psychology. And in a previous life, she was a fully qualified chartered surveyor, which if you don't know what that is in the episode, you'll find out right along with me. (laughs) So her route into education is somewhat different. Her current obsession is studying for a part-time online PhD in e-research in technology-enhanced learning at Lancaster University, and she just started her third year. Her research interests are around the areas of open online and social learning. She's also interested in the use of digital open badges in education, and she's an enthusiastic amateur sketch noter. And on a personal note, she has a supportive husband, two wonderful children, two lazy cats, a very energetic dog, and two sleepy hamsters. She also drives a bright pink car and loves anything pink and sparkly. Debbie Bath, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hi, Bonnie. It's great to be here. Thank you. I'm so glad to finally be talking. My husband asked who I was going to be speaking to today, and I was trying to remember when we first started. (laughs) So this has been like the longest invite ever. We each had our own series of, you know, yes, but not now. And I think we've been going on about a year now. (laughs) So I think it's something like that. It's really good to be here. (laughs) And it's lovely having you here. You have been working in higher education for over 20 years, and you're also now in the role of student. Can you tell us where you are in that studenting and what are some of the observations you've been having lately in that experience? Ah, good point. Yes, I've been, uh, well, I've been studying for longer than I care to remember now, but I'm a a PhD student in Lancaster University, a part-time online uh, distance-based course. And I've just gone into my third year. So the PhD is in e-research and technology-enhanced learning which is kind of handy because it's kind of related to what I do, although I am completely self-funded. I should just get that in there. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I've, I started it with a, with a great kind of sense of trepidation, really, but um, I, I'm hanging on by my fingertips, so I'm still there. <laughs> it's good fun. Yeah, so much of that with formal education is just putting one foot in front of the other and checking off the next 
you know, thing on the list. And it's hard, it can be hard, because you're also such a passionate lifelong learner, and you pursue so many things that are, you know, outside of uh, perhaps, I mean, somehow related, but it can be a little challenging. And certainly with the funding is, is a real challenge as well. Yeah, it is. And obviously with part-time funding as well, that's that's always a challenge. But it's something that I, I've always enjoyed studying. I always enjoy learning. So it was something that I wanted to do. And obviously I've got a very supportive hubby who kind of helps run everything when I've got my head in a book, you know, and what have you. So yeah, it was kind of something that I just, I wanted to do. And I thought, well, I'm I'm studying anyway. I'm kind of researching all this stuff anyway. So I might as well get something out of it. That was my plan. And I started on a doctoral program that was designed as a cohort program, which is unusual for a PhD course. And I, I've got to say, Lancaster University have really got it. It's on the money because in terms of the support that I get from the other people on the cohort, it's really tremendous. It's a really good way of doing it. There's lots of peer reviewing when we're doing assignments and things like that. There's lots of kind of WhatsApp group going on. There's lots of discussion forums. It's a really good way of providing that support and backup really for PhD students. So I'm forever in awe of some of the people on my course though. They're they're very clever people. Well, there's something else that came out in your bio that I didn't know if it was like a American thing where we call them lawyers and then you call them barristers because you said that in a previous life you were a fully qualified chartered surveyor and ah. that is not something that's familiar to me and I don't know if it's just because of a lack of education about this or if there's a cultural difference so can you tell us what that is? And <laughs> ah, right sure I think you might refer to it in, um, in the states as real estate. Oh yes yes yes. But like commercial real estate. So over here we have, um, we'd refer to somebody that um, that sells domestic housing as a, as an estate agent and somebody that kind of values, puts a value on commercial property, or there's there's various different versions of surveying. They could be building surveying, they could be land surveying, retail, industrial, that kind of thing. And there's something called an estate management strand. So yeah, I was a, a chartered surveyor with an estate management strand, which basically meant that I worked across retail, industrial, commercial properties, residential lands, that kind of thing. And funnily enough, I did all my surveying qualifications the hard way, part-time and by distance in the days when we didn't have the internet, we didn't have a sort of word processing. So I literally was handwriting all of these assignments and sending them off. So mm. I've gone through that element of it as well. And I think if I'm honest, when I got made redundant in the property recession, it was about 1996, I think around then. And having done all my qualifications part-time, I really found that I missed the studying, which sounds really odd. But I really missed it. So I started studying with the Open University at that point, just for something to do. And I went to a, they have a summer school at the Open University. And it was in the University of Bath. And I went there on a, on a week-long summer school and met a lady there who worked in student support and I oh, long very drawn out story, but I um, I actually hurt my back while I was there. So she came to kind of look after me. And as we got talking, I thought, oh, do you know what? I could do that. That's really good. So I kind of started to think about changing and moving out of the surveying profession and going into education. So that's what kind of utilized me to do something really. And as I was working for them, I literally rang them up and said, you know, if you've got any jobs going, can I come and work for you? And I wanted to do that. I was like, oh, can I, can I be a student support advisor? And they were like, 
yeah, right, you don't know anything about student support, but you can come and work in our post room. So I went and literally stuffed envelopes for a year, which was quite good fun. Um, <laughs> and, and I stayed there for quite a few years then. And I kind of moved around within the Open University. And obviously then while I was there as well, I carried on studying with them. And a, a, a position came up there, a part-time position, as well as the full-time role, which was to be an associate lecturer on one of the first online courses that they started running. It was only a little course, but I kind of put myself forward for it. And they, they took me on for that element as well. And then I got interested in studying with the online side of things. So that's when I started my master's in online and distance education. But the great thing about the OU is you can kind of put things down you can kind of take a break and then you can go back and and pick up your studies where you left oh that's great it's really handy but I mean I think if you look at my looked at my bio I think I started originally started my master's in something like 2001 and I ended up not finishing it till something like 2015 (laughs) so it took me all that time but in the middle of all of that I got married. I had two children. I started and finished another master's with another organization that I work with. So it was all, it all kind of worked out for the best. But yeah, I think it's funny how these things work out, isn't it? And I find there's a lot of people in learning technology have, have kind of got there from such a, a weird route. We've all got different ways of ending up there, but you know, in, in, a, in a very odd kind of way, all of the different things that I've done have kind of led me to this, this place now where I am working as an academic developer, trying to help people embed learning technology in their everyday life, really. So I've kind of, I suppose, drawn upon actually studying as a student on that element. And that has really, really helped me. I, I really think it's crucial that if you're going to teach online, you really need to experience it as well to kind of put yourself in the student's position. So I'm quite a strong believer in that, really. One of the things I'm so excited to talk to you about today is social learning. And I think we almost have to map it also to online learning too, because so much of that social learning takes place online. Would you speak a little bit about how you first became interested in social learning and some of the ways it's playing out for you today? Yeah, sure. I mean, I started as a project manager for a project called the OER Wales Cymru Project, which was an open educational resources initiative, which was run on behalf of all of the universities in Wales. And I started that in 2014. And as part of that role, my brief was to kind of promote open education resources and the use of it and open educational practice and really to kind of get in there and find out who was doing these things and how to to promote it amongst the the community in Wales. And as part of the programme, we developed a MOOC, a short pilot MOOC, which was a, a student survival guide MOOC. And I had to kind of just go out and find people who knew about these things. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but it's not something as easy as just going to a list on a university website and looking for somebody to say, well, how do I find the open education resources expert? How do I find them? So it it meant a lot of talking to people, which, as you can tell, I, I quite enjoy talking to people. So it was a great role. But part of it as well, we organised the OER 15 conference in Wales. Um, I think you had Catherine Cronin on your show not long ago. Yes. And Catherine was the chair, uh, is going to be the chair at this year's conference. So when I was involved with the OER 15 in Wales, that meant it's a, it's a conference that gets organised by a volunteer committee. 
So from my point of view, that was that was just such a gift because I I got to meet so many people that were involved in the open education world. And as a part of that conference committee, there were certain people on there who kind of suggested that I, I take part in various activities. And one of which was to take part in something called the Learning and Teaching in HE Tweet Chat which is a, a Twitter chat that happens on a Wednesday every week at eight o'clock in, in that's UK time. And this is this was started by two who have now become two great friends of mine, which is Sue Beckingham and Christina Rancy. You should get them on your show if you haven't had them already. They're mm, fabulous. I haven't. Uh, I'm definitely going to put them in as a recommendation. Honestly, you really should. They, they really, you know, I, and I don't say this lightly, they really changed my life really in terms of my trajectory of where I was going to go with my career. So this tweet chat, I started typical kind of community of practice thing. I started on the periphery of it, really quite in awe of these people that are having these conversations online. And I started out just by silently observing, I suppose, what was happening in these tweet chats. Because these things can be scary if you've never been involved in them before. And if you're suddenly seeing people that maybe you've read, you've read some of their work or you know about some of the things that they do. It can be quite a scary thing to kind of put your, your toe in the water. But this community is such an amazing community. It's really welcoming and really friendly. And it's a really great leveler because it really brings everybody in. And I found out so much from this community. And as a result of that, there's been other things that have come off the back of that. I was kind of introduced to an online event called the Bring Your Own Device for Learning event that they'd also set up. And as a result of my participation in that, I gradually kind of got more and more involved and I've helped facilitate on that now. I've also helped to organize some of the tweet chats on the learning and teaching in HE. It all kind of all connects together, really. And it's those sorts of things that have sparked off some interest for me in terms of my PhD and the kind of online social learning, how people learn in terms of our own professional development. And one of the things that I'm I'm interested in looking at research-wise is how we connect online and how those connections become stronger, if you see what I mean. So I suppose you're looking at all the kind of weak ties and strong ties, that kind of area of work, really. But I haven't quite nailed it down yet, but that's the sort of thing that I'm really interested in. So yeah, in terms of how I, how I got involved, that was really the main kind of catalyst for me, really. And I'm, I'm still involved in it now. I'm still involved in the OER conference committee. I do a lot with Association for Learning Technology as well. I suppose that's where I first discovered things like open digital badges, which and that opened my eyes to um to a whole different world i i'm just i just really like i like this kind of stuff it's really good there are two themes i'm hearing actually a, a theme and then a question i want to dive deeper on one is just this thing keeps coming into my head that instead of thinking of our roles as learners there's this whole sense of imposter syndrome and you know all these other people know so much more than I do and then you realize how so many of us are just on this journey and so it's this more this phrase comes into my mind as we are going and all of the learning that can take place if you think of it where we're all going and some of us are further along that path than others and some have chosen different you know forks in the paths to go down than we might as we're going but to stop thinking of it as we're there and that that that's really the goal but the as we are going and then i did want to ask more about digital badges so one of the things that really i suspect is not lost on you even though we are quite a distance from one another is that there's was this sort of 
big, huge fascination with digital badges and everybody wanted to do it. And then it kind of became one of those overused terms and maybe more seen as commoditized and not meaningful, but you've really found it to be meaningful. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you see as the promise of open digital badges. What does that do for us as learners and as educators? And and how do we avoid having it become just one of those, you know, real transactional things that that, that don't represent the kind of deep learning that we that we want to give ourselves and our students. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, in my opinion, really, that the, the value of an open digital badge, it's not the badge itself, it's the learning behind it. And it's being able to convey to somebody your skills and accomplishments of what, what you've done. It actually conveys it. The analogy was always kind of given to me that some of the, the, the open digital badges that I've earned, for example, I've earned them for presenting at a conference. So on that particular open digital badge, I can display it on my website or on my, my uh, blog, and it would allow somebody to click on that badge. And then that would take them perhaps to an abstract of the presentation that I gave or to the presentation if it was video to the conference link themselves so people could actually see what I was talking about and see the presentation at the time. The added value that some of the functionality that Open Digital Badges have these days is that people can actually endorse the badge as well. So it could be that somebody had attended that co- that conference presentation and had then use some of the ideas maybe that I presented about in their current practice and they could actually go onto that and endorse it and say oh I went to your presentation and I found it really helpful and I've now gone on and done something else with it so you know the value of that it's literally just in the the way that you're able to portray things I mean I did quite a lot with open digital badges a couple of years ago when we were trying to pilot them at Swansea at the moment we're kind of on hold only because Things kind of went a bit quiet in the open digital badge world. I was involved with a fabulous group of ladies who we helped to form a open digital badges conference in HE, which we did, um, I think that was 2016, we did that, University of Southampton. And we had about, I can't remember now, but there were lots of people that came and shared their work about what they were doing. There was a big appetite for it at the time in terms of what people were doing with it and where people thought open digital badges could go. And obviously there's a difference between open digital badges and just digital badges because I I remember myself, I did a course once, uh, an online course, and I thought, oh, this is great. This has got digital badges with it. But it was digital badges that were kind of locked behind the, the issuing platform. So I couldn't do anything with them. So they're now sitting somewhere. I can't remember the name of the place, but they're just sitting there. I can't do anything with them. So I've always been quite careful since then to make sure that anything I'm looking at in relation to that is open. It is an open digital badge, which means that it's in my gift to be able to share it and, and, and share it with people, display it on various websites and what have you. So that was quite important. I mean, in terms of where I think we're going with it, I think it will come around again in terms of how it's going to be used. Particularly, obviously, it's very useful for this to demonstrate people's, I suppose you call them soft skills, you know, that kind of thing, collaborative work, being able to work on a project, that kind of thing. It would be really, really useful for students to be able to, when they go into job interviews, to be able to show these things. 
but also it'll come with kind of really micro micro level credentials in terms of assessment really that kind of thing so you can really drill down into the various learning objectives I guess that kind of thing it just it's a visual way of displaying things but it's it's so it's not really the badge itself it's the the learning that sits underneath it and what people have actually gained from those experiences that's what I'm interested in really You've already shared an application that I am not super familiar with, and that's the giving a presentation and receiving a badge. And I can see how beneficial that would be, too, for that to then go to the abstract. And especially if the whatever tool the event planners are using allow you to add your own presentation materials to that link, how helpful that would be to really open up conferences, too, like the work that Virtually Connecting is trying to do to get you know more people to have conferences be accessible to them, even if they can't travel due to funding or other reasons. Yeah. Would you talk a little bit then about the idea of a digital wallet? I mean, you've implied it, but so we want whatever digital badges we pursue to be open and not locked behind the issuing platform. But could you talk a little bit about the idea of a digital wallet and how that helps us then actually be able to do something with those digital badges we earn? Yeah, I mean, I suppose yeah, it's funny you should mention virtually connecting because I've been involved with that as well as a brilliant organisation. And yeah, it could definitely help with things like that. In terms of the open digital badges, the one I was most involved with was a, the Mozilla backpack, which literally is like an online backpack that you can kind of put your badges into. And then that kind of stores them in one place. And all of the data behind it is all sort of baked in behind it. So Doug Belshaw is one of the kind of evangelists for um, digital badges, and he would kind of describe it as uh, as baking a cake. So as you bake a cake, you put various ingredients in it, and then your end, end product, you couldn't then pull out each of those ingredients after you've baked the cake. So that's always, I mean, I'm not a very you know, technically minded person, but that kind of makes, makes a lot of sense to me, if you see what I mean. So with the Mozilla backpack, you know, there's various badges that I've obtained that I've put onto that. I don't think we're there yet in terms of, they're on this thing called the open badges kind of infrastructure that means that you can share it across lots of different platforms. But I don't think we're there yet because there's lots of, at the moment, lots of different issuers. And I've tried lots of different ones. I've tried a kind of open badge passport, I've tried the Mozilla. Um, There's a couple of different ones as well. I can share some links if, if you're interested in it. But what I've ended up doing is I've ended up actually having lots of them. And really, it's it, it then could become cumbersome, you know. So I says I don't think we're quite there yet. But there's a there's a great kind of wiki that we put together. A few of us got together, and, and there's some really good information on that. So I'll share that for you when I find the link. Oh, that'd be um, great. In case anybody would like to have a little look. Oh, I definitely would. And I sort of feel a little bit better that you say it's not all together because I felt a little bit like. I might just be missing something. <laughs> I, I might just not, I've needed to turn one more page and then all the magic, you know, that, that everyone else is experiencing is there because it does feel a little, a little discombobulated when, you know, my, my limited experience with it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it could just be me. Maybe it is together and I just haven't got it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think, in, you know, that's in my own kind of personal opinion. Yeah, I think, but it will definitely come. I, I would put money on it because obviously with all the kind of blockchain stuff, which is a whole mystery to me, I really don't understand it but you know you can definitely see that there are so many applications that people will will think of and obviously once other organizations start embracing it some of the big corporate companies are are embracing open digital badges now so I'm sure it will really take off at some point. 
Well, I don't want to let this part of our conversation end without selfishly asking you about something that I have dabbled with and would love to know more about. And I know you call yourself an enthusiastic amateur, but I'm still going to ask you, can we talk <laughs> about sketch notes? But for people listening who may not know what sketch notes is, why don't you start by just sharing what they are? And then I have a couple of questions I'd love to ask you. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, I, I call my my little sketch notes that I do, I call them scribbles, because in comparison to some of these really fabulous people that are out there, mine are really baby sketch notes. But I got involved with it by Twitter, really. There were lots of things on Twitter that I was noticing a kind of a common thread appearing. And there, some people call it graphic recording. Some people call it sketch noting. And my take on that is the graphic recording is more of the big huge bits of paper that people use and at like conferences and things where they kind of capture the story of the day with images and words and they're all very big and colourful and we had a, a graphic artist at the conference that I organised in Swansea we've had her for the last um, couple of years I'll also give you her link as well her name's Eleanor Beer she's fabulous and she came and did this kind of great uh, I don't know how big it was but six foot by four foot big bit of paper and she captured the whole theme of the day in there and it was brilliant because she did she did it live in front of the audience and for some members of the audience they'd never seen anything like this before and it really engaged them and I'd seen this at some other conferences that I'd helped to organize with different people doing it and I'd seen it done on a smaller scale and on a bigger scale and it's slightly different and obviously with the sketch notes side of it they tend to be more for your own use. So, you know, what I would put on a sketch note is my own notes that I'm taking. So it kind of makes sense to me in the way that I've done it, but I'm not necessarily sure that it would make sense to other people. But I do kind of share them as a reminder or a memento of something that I've done, like gone to a conference and what have you. And, you know, some people seem, seem to like them and seem to find them useful, I think. But as I said, they're more just for me uh, in terms of just, just to keep my kind of brain occupied as I'm trying to make notes and I I like drawing and doodling and I wouldn't call myself a, um, an artist by any sense of the, the word really but I do quite like to to scribble now and again so I did some some little scribbles at work one day and my boss got hold of one and, and sort of said oh could you do us one of these for our new CPD framework at Swansea so that's now on our web page which is kind of cool but as I said you know when I look at this you know when you look at something and you kind of you inwardly cringe and you think well it's not very good actually mm-hmm. why you've on there, <laughs> you know, but other people seem seem to like it. But there's there's a whole load of a sketch noting movement out there that if people want to see how it's really done, you know, you can see these really clever people doing it. Mike Rhodes, um, there's other people on there. I'm going to give you some links as well for that, so that people can go and have, there's a, there's something called a sketch note army as well, which mm. is. Uh, yeah, have you come across that? Do you do you do any yourself, Bonnie? Are you? I do. Well, to to start, I first became familiar with just the idea of stopping the PowerPoint overload with the twenty seven <laughs> bullets on a page or whatever from a guy named Dan Rome, and he wrote a book called The Back of the Napkin: ah, Solving right. Problems and Selling Ideas with Pictures. And if you look at his stuff, he's got a wonderful book called The Back of the Napkin. It's my five-year-old or six-year-old, seven-year-old draws better than this. I mean, so, but it it just lowers the bar because it's not about artist. It's about thinking and visualizing it. And when I do sketch noting at conferences, I remember it so much better. But once, so here's my biggest struggle though. I have trouble 
with pacing. It see when I want when I look at other people's sketch notes, it looks like they knew exactly how much room each point needed to take. <laughs> and you know, you hear these brilliant keynoters, it's not like they stand up and say, I have five points I'll be sharing with you today. And one will take approximately 10 minutes and the other one will be five. So I that's where I, I I've found myself that's the downfall to many of my sketch notes is I thought that I was going to need a lot more space or I didn't leave enough space. And so it's how do you group the topics as they're emerging organically when, and then by the time you're done, like the whole thing looks full, there's no big empty white spaces and there's no crowded ideas. Does this make any sense to you? Did you struggle with yeah, this too? Definitely, definitely. And there's a, there's an excellent book called the sketch note handbook, which is great because it's t- really takes you through it step by step about how to build these things up. And I've kind of picked up some some tips and tricks by watching other people. And some of the big graphic recording artists have a little wadge of sticky notes as they're doing it. And they kind of capture a main idea or a main theme on a quick sticky note. And then they pop it on the page and then they carry on doing what it is they were doing. So they kind of go back to it afterwards and finish it. But often in conferences, you're you're then going on to another session or you're then going on to another keynote. So yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I think that I've done it both ways. I've done it with paper, just with, you know, belted pens and what have you. And then I've also been using my iPad uh, more recently to do it. And I quite like that because it means you can rub it out, which is quite good. Yes. Um, but, uh, I've been used in, I've experimented with a couple of different ones, different apps, you know, things like Paper, the old Paper 53 and Procreate and uh, Adobe Sketchbook, I think that one was called. Sorry, I still kind of haven't settled on one. I've got lots of different sort of sketchbooks on my um, iPad. So I kind of you know, jump from one to the other, really, depending. I, I think I get bored from <laughs> For the other, but yeah, definitely, I, it's got potential for it because what I often find at conferences as well is that if I know the session that I'm going to, I'll actually put the date and the conference title and the name of the speaker, that kind of thing. And if I know what they look like, I'll try and do a little quick drawing of them mm. as well, and I'll put that on the on the iPad to start with, so that then at least I've got some bits on there that I know what's going to happen, you know. But I know what you mean. You're always going to get something where, you, particularly, you start it in one end. And then you, you've ended up with a tiny little drawing because you thought you were going to have lots of, <laughs> lots of other things to fill in. But um, the good thing about the iPad, of course, is you can expand it and then cut it and paste it, which is really cool. <laughs> well, I'm hearing so many things here. I'm hearing that it it's to do a little prep work in advance and then also to leave room that you're not going to finish while you're sitting in the session. So that's probably part of my problem is thinking that they just do it during the 50 minutes and then they're done. They tweet it off and off they go so that there's a, you know, a little bit more to it than that. But I'm also laughing because you're telling me I should read the books that I already own because I looked at the sketch handbook and then also the sketch workbook. And I own both yeah. of these books and I have not read them. So I need to take them out and actually read the books that I already own. Yes, yes, that would be a good idea. I did a, a sketch note hangout once. I forget the lady's name that did it, but it was a literally a kind of 30 minutes Google Hangout type thing. And oh, dear me, was that full on, you know, and it was it was quite kind of eye opening in terms of how people were able to do things so quickly, you know, but I only ever did one of them because I just felt that I was completely useless at it. I do think it's so helpful for us to do things that we are completely useless at because that's our students so many times. And if we don't exercise that feeling of just, wow, I'm out of my, I'm out of my league here, then that we're not going to be very able to serve those students who have those same sorts of feelings as they enter into our 
learning spaces. So we we just try to avoid it, but it's just, it's so good for us. It's like going to the dentist, you know? Yes, it is. (laughs) And I think you're right. I think it does help, particularly, it kind of helps you to be vulnerable from time to time, doesn't it? You know, and I think you kind of, you learn from those things, as you say, you know, learning is is messy and yeah. you know it can be scary and I think you do learn a lot from those situations really and then I remember when I first started sketch noting at conferences I was sat next to somebody and I was kind of you know, just doodling away by myself and I she kind of peered over my shoulder and said oh you know what are you going to do with that now and I said oh I don't know I'm just going to put it somewhere you know and close the iPad she said well, why don't you tweet it I said, I can't tweet this. Nobody's going to want to see this. It's rubbish. <laughs> and she was like, no, go on, go on, tweet it, tweet it. And so she encouraged me and I tweeted it. And um, that was a, a, a somebody who actually is now a, a really good friend of mine called Sheila McNeil. She's actually a really good artist in her own right, which I didn't know at the time. <laughs> I think had I known that, I might not have. I thought I'd agree to tweet it. But yeah, so I tweeted it and people were lovely. They were really encouraging and really kind of, oh yeah, you know, that we really like what you've done there. So that just kind of, when I look back now and I can see the kind of progression of stuff when I started off, you know, and, and I can see that I have got better with practice, you know, and that that's quite encouraging as well to look back on things. So I'm glad I didn't get rid of some of those really early rubbishy ones. So <laughs> Absolutely. Before we get to the recommendations segment, I wanted to thank today's sponsor for the episode, and that is Text Expander. Text Expander has been our longest sponsor and is one of those that I feel so good about because it's something I was recommending long before they ever sponsored us. In fact, they first heard about teaching in higher ed through reading a blog post that I had written about how much I get a good use out of text expander. And so they know that I had been recommending it. And it's something that's always one of the first applications I install on a new computer or device. Text Expander works through what are called snippets. And a snippet is just a series of characters that you type in that expand into something longer or possibly something just hard to remember. Like for me, it's always my work phone number. Since I don't dial it, I don't remember it. I only know what the shortcut is. And even if you don't remember a shortcut or a snippet for what your text is, you can go up to the little menu bar. Sometimes I don't remember what the snippet text is and I can just click up there and then it'll insert the text. And you can get started really quick and start saving yourself time right away. But you can even get a little bit more sophisticated. It's not that hard. So where I can have the subject line of an email get typed in and then automatically have the tab tab pressed so that it's now in the subject line of an email and that text can expand from typing a standard subject line and then having text in the body of it. And even within that body, I can have variables such as the person's name if I'd like to greet them more personally or a date, or other kinds of special characters or text input that I might want to have. And what I like about Text Expander is that it frees me up from the monotonous stuff so that I can have the more meaningful communication and interactions that I so long for. And Text Expander is a great way to do that. And if you go to the link in the show notes to Text Expander, you'll be able to access a special discount for our listeners. Make sure you indicate that you heard about them from teaching in higher ed. Thanks so much for listening to the sponsor and thanks to Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode. Well, this is the time in the show where we each get to give our recommendations. And recently, Rashida Crutchfield was on the show and she shared about some former students of hers that had created a 
planner called the Passion Planner. And I'm not going to recommend it today only because ours have been ordered, but I haven't received it yet. So of course, I don't like to recommend things I haven't (laughs) tried myself. But it got me to thinking just of our students who go on to create such wonderful ventures, what are often called social enterprises. So the passion planner, if you go to their website, they have where you buy a planner, and then they give a planner away, I believe to a student, but forgive me passion planner team if I'm getting your your um, (laughs) giveaway wrong. And so I recently got to do some speaking at Hastings College in Nebraska. And they have a similar social enterprise there called Pasha Soap. It's P-A-C-H-A-S-O-A-P. And I suggest that people go check out their website and look at their mission and just these wonderful former students of Hastings that are taking their entrepreneurial spirit and really, you know, making some money and also making a difference in the world. And then we have two at my institution where I teach Vanguard University social enterprises that actually one of them called Crochet Kids When I taught one of my early, early introduction to business classes, they wrote their business plan for this nonprofit as their final project in that class. So it's so fun to see them now and their products are sold all over in lots of different places like Nordstrom is one that comes to mind, but lots of different avenues. And you can also order from them online. And it used to be strictly products that were crocheted, but now they do other types of t-shirts and things like that. It's a great organization. And I just love seeing them show up in lots of different media. It's just so fun to see how it's grown and expanded. And then the other one is called 31 Bits. And this was a group of young women. I didn't get to interact with them too much when they were at my institution, but it was around that same time early in my teaching. And they have gone on now and created such amazing uh, a business that has just grown and grown and grown. And again, I see it all over the place. It started out with them making, they, they went on a trip somewhere overseas and they learned how to make these little beads out of paper. And wow. so it started with necklaces and bracelets with the, I mean, you don't, you can't tell the beads are made out of paper, but when you first look at them, but they're so light when you pick them up, that then you can figure they're not made out of, you know, this traditional material that beads would be made out of, but they've wow. really expanded too. So it's not just these paper, paper made beads. That's how they got their start. But now they've got all different kinds of jewelry and fashion. And I keep wanting to order, although I have to wait till my daughter's maybe a tad bit older, because they have a really neat jewelry making kit for kids that I saw on their website. And so I love that idea. And yet she's just worried the whole thing if they all spill out onto the floor. It's like, well, maybe we'll wait. Oh, kids jewelry kit. Yeah, with all these different color beads where the and then they can make their own bracelets and necklaces and stuff. So I'm um, with all the, oh, little, the different paper great. beads. Yeah. So my, my recommendation is to check out these social enterprises. I would love to hear from listeners if there are similar organizations that your former students have started. I'd love to feature some more of those on future episodes. So please get in touch with me on the website or on Twitter. I just love to hear about more of these. And, and just I just think it's so inspiring to think about our work as teachers and how it can turn into just these these young people going on and doing amazing things in this world. So that's my recommendation. And now I get to pass it over to you, Deb. Oh, wow. Thank you. Gosh, that all sounds really, really good. I can't wait to have a look at those links that you share. Yeah, I see. When you mentioned to me that obviously the recommendations bit is part of the show, I was like, oh, no, there's so many things. I mm-hmm. want to 
<laughs> so I, I might just be sneaking an email you with a few more, but I've mentioned two of them, which is the learning and teaching in HE tweet chat. So I would recommend that people go and check that website out because that, as I said, happens once a week on a Wednesday at 8pm, that's UK time. And there's all sorts of different things that we talk about there. And we have guest kind of facilitators on there. We come up with a series of six different questions that we ask uh, throughout the hour. And it's usually quite a really frantic hour uh, with a (laughs) tweet chat but it's always good fun and you always come away learning something and as I said I've I've met so many people and had so many opportunities through that particular tweet chat so I would really recommend that people have a look at that so that's l-t-h-e chat c-h-a-t dot com and in the same vein as well the bring your own devices for learning I'd call it an online course, but it's more like an online event, really. And I'm helping, along with um, a couple of colleagues, Suzanne Faulkner and uh, Sue Beckenham, we're helping to put together another community edition again this year. It'll probably be around December time, but we haven't quite finalised that. But it's a week-long, free, open online event that helps people to literally do what it says on the tin, you know, to bring your own device and and, uh, and see how that you can use that in your learning and teaching, really. So we asked for some volunteers recently from the community to see if anybody wants to help organise it. So I can share that website with you. But at the moment, it won't have anything on there about the forthcoming ones, but it will ha- give you a flavour of what we've done in the past. So that's bring your own device for learning. So it's B-Y-O-D-4, that's the number four, and learning, L E. A-R-N-I-N-G dot WordPress dot com. So if people want to have a look at at that, that's a really good site that I recommend. I was going to sneak in a quick plug for the OER 19 conference as well, just to give that a plug. I'm really excited to go over to Galway. Um, I've been on the organising committee, so I've seen some of the abstracts and it looks a really, really good conference. So Open Education Resources 19, OER 19. And I was going to sneak in one more as well. I don't know. Have you ever come across a chap called Brian Mathis, Bonnie? No. He's, he's fabulous. He helped us. We, we recently did a social media for learning in HE conference that we put together as a, as a community conference, which we held at Nottingham Trent recently, like in the last couple of weeks or something. And Brian helped us do some visual thinking. He basically kind of, we met him online and he helped us put our ideas into a visual display. So I'll share some of that because he's just got a really, really good way of kind of almost just, just like seeing what's in your brain. It's really, really clever. And he, he, we, we, we came up with some stickers for the event and we came up with some branding for the event. And it's all sort of the style of sketch notes. So I'll share that. And he's on Twitter and he's at Brian M. Mathers. So I'll share that because I can't quite remember his how you spell his name, but I'll, I'll, I'll email it to you because I really recommend if you like sketch notes and stuff like that, you'll really like Brian's work. And it's all Creative Commons license work as well. And he has his own kind of company that he does consultancy work for people. So obviously we had him to look at that for us. But yeah, I really recommend you having a look at that. It's some great stuff on there. And he does things with open digital badges as well. So there you go. <laughs> oh, I just, I did find him on Twitter. It was relatively easy with Brian with a Y. To, that, that's the, it. At some point yeah. it auto-correct or, or, you know, it uh, guessed that that's who I was looking for. And his header 
on Twitter is phenomenal. Oh my gosh, I could get lost just in this one thing. And I can only imagine when I go to his website, there's more. Yeah, I did find love it. Brian M. Mathers and yeah, oh gosh. He's great, Brian. He's really, I've met him a couple of times now and he's, he's really, really tall. And I've got a great photograph on my Twitter somewhere, if you have a look, because I tried to take a selfie of myself and Brian. And all I've got is the top of, or the bottom of his head. <laughs> but he's such a lovely guy. He's really, really nice. And he'd be a great person to have on your um, on your podcast as well. Oh, you have so many great suggestions for me. I'm so glad that we finally got this chance to connect together after all this time and... <laughs> It's been absolutely delightful. I I already knew it was going to be, but I have so many places I want to go explore now and learn so much more. And I'm just so glad to be connected with you and to have you on the show. Oh, I really enjoyed it. I was so excited to meet with you and it was really good. I really, really enjoyed it. Thanks ever so much. Oh, absolutely. It was such a delight getting to speak with Debbie Baff today. Thank you so much for just this delightful conversation and for those great recommendations and all of the things that are going to show up in the show notes. If you want to look at today's show notes, go to teachinginhighered.com slash 248. They also show up in your podcast player too, so you can just click right from there. Lots of great links to people, to tools, and to various resources to help us continue to grow our ability to serve our students well in their learning. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you've been listening for a while and haven't shared the podcast with one of your colleagues, please do. That's often the best way to share about the podcast and get more people listening and engaged in the community. And if we have yet to connect on Twitter, I'd love for you to do that. I'm at B-O-N-N-I 208. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.